Hey, I'm Mike Bruce, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. To a meeting, and, that, and um, it, was, it was pretty cool. I spent my first part of my career in consumer and uh, dealt with a lot of celebrities and, and that whole angle. And I was like, shit, this is, this is going to be huge. And, and here we are. It's like the zeitgeist of, of pop culture now. <laughs> it's been a wild ride. Um, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is as an investor, um, it is remarkable to watch how little the investors move the needle. I mean, guidance here or there, but but really what, what helped them get off the ground was just an unrelenting sense of urgency that they were sitting on one of the biggest market opportunities uh, that could possibly exist and just a complete obsession with going and executing and winning over talent um, and convincing them to join. Um, and just a maniacal focus on product as well. Uh, Steven used to say, every cameo that goes out in the world is the best advertisement possible for the next cameo. Um, and so he was just obsessed with getting as many cameos out in the world as possible because he thought this unit was just so magical and he was right. So yeah, amazing. that's awesome. And you're on the board, correct? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I wrote the, I was the, uh, you know, I was blessed to be the first VC to write them a check, uh, in a pre-seed round and then starting line, my firm led their seed round. Um, and they've kind of kept me around the hoop ever, ever since. I mean, you know, just to be totally candid, like they, they've, they've outgrown me and they have, sure. you know, board members who've taken many companies public at hundreds of billions of dollars of, of you know, market value. Um, but I hope that I've been able to, to help them keep a little bit of the same kind of, I don't know, founding energy that, that, you know, the, the big wigs, <laughs> yeah. you know, what, what's my, that my been like for you out. as a board member, you know, getting kind of exposure to some of these like quote unquote big wigs and people that have taken companies public, has that leveled you up in, in any way? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that the, um, I think that the thought processes start to change a little bit. Um, and it's just stuff that you don't necessarily think about as much as a seed investor, right? Mm -hmm. I, as a seed investor, the questions I'm often asking teams are, uh, or what are we constrained? Are, are we prioritized enough? Are we getting distracted? Because the biggest talk of ventures and, and um, that was in my first kind of gig out of business school, my only gig out of business school, they treated me phenomenally well and gave me my start in the, in the investment business. Um, I would, I had, I had been thinking about uh, my own platform, uh, what that would look like, uh, some things I could do differently um, but there were not a ton of people who were super interested in, in funding me <laughs> um, back then. And, uh, and I didn't really know how to get it off the ground. And one day I wake up and, you know, I, I'm not a rich man by any means, but, but the nest egg uh, that I put into Bitcoin is worth, you know, enough money to start making some investments. Um, and so, you know, before we had a fund, the first investment we made was actually into Cameo. And that was a mix of selling some Bitcoin that Stephen, Stephen uh, will often say, like, how are we doing, like, how's our valuation compared to if you just held, right? I think I sold my Bitcoin <laughs> at like, at like 11 or 13,000 to, to write some, to write uh, the first part of the check into Cameo and then borrowed a bunch of money to complete that investment. Um, but could have never made it without kind of Bitcoin giving me at least a little bit of ammunition. Sure. Um, so anyway, th th uh, thankfully, unless Bitcoin goes to like a million, um, 
Cameo will be a much better use of proceeds. Uh, so it's, it's been a fun ride. Are you still long crypto and, and Bitcoin and, and everything going on in that space? Yeah, we're actually um, super aggressive into crypto out of out of uh, fund two. We we made a couple of investments in our first fund. Um, the second fund, you know, launched December, November, December uh, 2020, um, which is right when everything started to go crazy again in, in kind of the new bull market. Um, and so we've made a couple of direct token investments, and then we've made two equity investments. Um, the only one that we've shared publicly is a company called Stacked, um, stackedinvest.com, um, that basically is kind of a, a port, uh, an algorithmic portfolio manager uh, for all of your assets. So w- the way that I look at it is, is for any of your listeners who hold a bit of crypto, or they used to hold a bit, now they hold a lot. There's never been a market like this for for the average investor. FX markets have been 24-7, but for you or me, we've never lived the 24-7 market before. And even in the most exhausting days of either the 2008 crash or the uh, 2020 COVID crash, like the market closed at 4 p.m. and you could go have dinner with your family. That doesn't exist in crypto. Saturdays, Sundays, there's volatility. Mornings, nighttimes, there's volatility. And so, you know, part of what they're selling is peace of mind. You tell us what you want out of your crypto out of your crypto portfolio and, and we're going to help you achieve that and you can stop obsessing and we're going to sell you peace of mind and sanity. Um, and I think that's a pretty powerful pitch in today's market. That's super powerful. Like I'll roll over at like 2 a.m. and open up my iPhone and, and I have like the Robin Hood widget or whatever to see the crypto sure. I open one eye. You're like, oh God, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you 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 call yourself the ninety nine percent. I think crypto is an interesting part of that, right? Like your 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 DeFi or whatever you would want to call it. Like why the 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 thesis or uh, mission around consumer for for the ninety nine percent? What what caused you to say, hey, I'm gonna leave Chicago Ventures. I'm gonna take a loan out. I'm gonna sell some crypto. I'm gonna get into Cameo. And I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm messing up these events, but the, the thesis of just like, hey, why go raise your own signal and focus on like consumer for the ninety nine percent? Yeah, no, I mean, um, the, the, the number one question I asked myself in that period is, does the, does the world need another seed fund? Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, there had been a rush of one to 2,000 new seed funds created in the kind of 2015 to 2018 era. Actually, it may have been several hundred. Um, and at the time, I, I asked myself very uh, aggressively, does the world need another seed fund? I obviously answered yes. The, the funny thing is since then, there's been like 10x the volume of new seed funds. And, and everybody is everybody is a venture capital fund you know, these days, uh, especially with kind of the, the angel of syndicates and solo GPs. And, and, and there's a lot going on there. Uh, so I spent a lot of time kind of you know, beating up that question. And in retrospect, it may have been a waste of energy. But, but I saw two things. So... Um, I worked at an incredible firm, Chicago Ventures. Uh, they are great investors, great people. Um, the, but I loved consumer investing and their sweet spot for investments um, had at the time, I think they've kind of reset, but had, the, had at the time started to deviate from what I was seeing in the consumer world, um, which was that um, you know a lot of consumer businesses would raise a seed round or a pre-seed round, so to speak. Uh, uh, that term was not as common back then on uh, very little data and very little kind of customer knowledge. But the moment there was so much latent consumer demand for new products and services that the moment they found any type of product market fit, the, the company would inflect super, super quickly. And so it used to be in the old days when I got started in the venture business in 2012, you raise a $1.2 million seed round and then a $4 million series A. 
then it became, what I was seeing was you'd raise a $2 million seed round. And if it inflected even at all, you'd raise a 10 to $25 million series A. And obviously those numbers have only grown since yeah. then in the past in the past three years. And so I was kind of missing out on opportunities because they were too early and then missing out on opportunities because the rounds got too big. So so kind of number one is I wanted to be able to play in, in what I knew I did best and what the data demonstrated that I was actually a good investor at rather than trying to, to kind of fit a square peg into a round hole. Number two, um, number two in terms of the 99% angle is I looked at my best investments uh, at that time, companies like Spot Hero, the largest, uh, the leading marketplace uh, for booking, you know, parking spots online, a company like M1 Finance, one of the fastest growing fintechs in, in the world that provided kind of uh, fee-free uh, uh, a trading and portfolio management. And what they did at their core was they offered a better product, a better experience at a cheaper price. Not sort of similar from Uber and Airbnb, mm -hmm. what allowed them to kind of capture the market by guys. So that was number one. And that combined with, you know, 2017 era, Donald Trump's just been elected president. There's a lot of talk about red states, blue states, who's a 99% or who's a one percenter. There, there's a lot of conversation going on uh, about about these topics, like about uh, economic inequality, 99%, 1%. And the, there aren't, the, you know, there are some funds kind of around the edges doing stuff, you know, bottoms up economy, the everyday economy, but, but I thought, but they're also in San Francisco or New York and like, it just felt a little bit incongruous or in, inauthentic. And so I kind of raised my hand and I said, there's got to be an opportunity given that we're based in Chicago and we have our ear to the ground because we're in the, in the heartland. I mean, Chicago's a real city. Yeah. Like we're, in the, we're in the heartland. We've got our ear to the ground. We're closer to the real 90% than anybody else. I think we can capture a big percentage of that mind share, both you know, from entrepreneurs, from LPs, uh, and hopefully from, from customers. And that was kind of the, the origin of wanting to do it this way. Oh, man, I love it. I get I get energized just hearing that. Um, I guess maybe just kind of taking a quick. So do I. Back. That's why that's why I'm still here. Yeah, I love it. Um, and and by the way, some of this stuff is is incredible. You can um, read a lot of starting lines. Um, just they have an open operating system more or less on on GitHub, so you can see a lot of it. We'll we'll, we'll dig into that. But one of the things I think is really interesting um, that I would love to touch on with you is. I mean, the mental health policy that starting yeah. line does. Um, you mentioned we started starting line against all odds in a tough fundraising environment while taking no paychecks. Um, I guess, you know, how did this shape you? Um, I guess in the view of the founder and what the whole founding process looks like and the lifestyle of like, how, how did that shape you? And then I'll get into some maybe the mental health questions um, from, from there. Yeah, I mean, look, I... I've never been under the assumption that fundraising uh, is easy. Fundraising is very easy for certain uh, for certain companies and individuals. We are in a market right now that is very much defined by haves and have-nots. That once you are validated uh, to any material degree, depending on kind of you know uh, risk level and stage, there is a near infinite amount of capital for for uh, mm -hmm. people or companies that are viewed as validated quote unquote um but if you are not it's excruciating so i've never been under the assumption that it was easy but but um and i had raised money in the past for for projects um not a huge amount million dollars here, here or there um and had seen that it wasn't easy, but it also wasn't the hardest thing. But but raising my fund was a whole new level of experience um, in terms of what I learned. So um, again, didn't think it was easy. Um, I learned a lot about what it feels like um, to experience shame, embarrassment, insecurity on on a you know 
daily, hourly, seemingly minute, minute business. I, you know, again, if you take a step back and kind of just take a, a rational, logical approach to things, could I deal with the fact that like, I wasn't good enough to raise my own fund? Yeah, I think I could have like logically said, okay, I went to market selling X, X was the wrong product. I really should have offered 2X or Y or whatever it may be and kind of recalibrate and move on from there. I think logically all that I believe, but what, what gets kind of missed in the moment is all of the emotions that it causes in, in your own mind about, um, it's not about what I'm selling, it's about me because your identity gets mm -hmm. inextricably wrapped up in what you are doing, especially if you're fundraising and, and you're doing that all day. I mean, the interesting thing about fundraising and you know, I'm on the other side, now when entrepreneurs pitch pitch us, but I'm on the entrepreneur side when I'm pitching LPs is that when you're in fundraising mode, it's very easy to bang off an email, ask for a meeting, what whatever it is. So you can spend 24 hours a day obsessing about fundraising, whereas the people that you're pitching, you know, you're barely a blip on their radar. And that is also that is also a power dynamic that I knew existed, but until you live it and experience it, it's it's very hard to relate to. Okay, all that said, um, we 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 um, we have tried to make uh, mental health a focus and a priority of our of our operations. Um, today, we have a very simple product. Our simple product is we will subsidize um, the first three sessions, whether that's for a therapist, an executive coach. Um, or, uh, or, or anything else really um, for founders who are struggling or not struggling or just want to work on communication or, or whatever it or ever may be. Um, in addition to the subsidies, um, uh, we also, <laughs> through uh, my wife, who's an American family therapist and, and her network, um, can kind of access the, the right local resources. So both for insurance um, and relationship building reasons, most founders like to meet with someone local to them. It helps both yeah. from an insurance purpose, um, as well as, you know, post-COVID, uh, people theoretically will go back to some, at least in-person, non-telehealth therapy and, and coaching and stuff like that. So you want to be someone that you can actually drive to, take public transportation to, whatever it may be. Um, so, uh, so we can help with actually finding people who are local to you. And we have done that now for many, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so founders and executives in our portfolio. That's kind of V1 of the product. We would love to iterate and build a better product for V2 that continues to further mental health. Um, I think that there are some ways to do that around kind of group therapy sessions, but we haven't mm -hmm. quite nailed what that looks like yet. Um, the biggest struggle that we have with, with our product, and by the way, there are now a lot of other firms offering subsidies. I think Alex Ahanian's 776 is doing like 1% or, uh, and then Felicis also does kind of 1%. I think mm -hmm. of all management fees or investment dollars go into basically a, a mental health pool um, whatever it is. So, so there, are, there are other kind of ways to, to do this. We're, we're certainly not the only ones. Um, but yeah, trying to iterate on it and make it better. What was the, the impetus for starting this? Was this your own mental psyche going through a fundraise? Like why? I mean, you guys don't have like insane management fees, right? So like it's, it's probably, it's not immaterial that the amount you guys are putting forward. So why, why the big emphasis on, on mental health? Yeah, it actually, I mean, all the credit goes to my, to my spouse, um, Shira, um, you know, it was probably four ish years ago. Um, yeah, she went to bed early, I don't know, nine 30 and she gets woken up at 1130 and basically who you're talking to. And I said, I'm talking to so-and-so CEO of this company. And she goes, well, 
why are you talking to them at 1130 at night? I said, well, you know, there's this fire and that fire and I'm, you know, they're feeling, they're feeling really distraught and they kind of need someone to kind of just, just talk to you to like talk about their emotions and feelings. She was like, well, why are they calling me you? <laughs> um, and, and, and it was a question I hadn't really considered to that t- uh, up until that point. Uh, and a lot of VCs will tell you that, you know, one part of their job is to be a therapist. Um, and actually the, what ended up occurring from that is she, she was a marriage and family therapist and with um, a close friend of hers, whose husband uh, was also a founder um, and had been uh, experiencing the same things firsthand, they decided to start a practice focused on uh, startup founders called mm-hmm. called Amity. So fast forward a couple of years, when I when I found Starting Line, it occurs to me that like, you know, founders need this product. I'm watching their business grow. I'm seeing how much demand there is. Everybody's saying to me, "Hey, your wife's the one who, you know, she can help." out like I'm having some co-founder issues she's the one who can help me out right like starting to realize a lot of people have this problem they don't know where to turn you know like googling co-founder therapy does not return a whole lot of results you know you're lying in your bed at night uh your company is a mess or your founder relationship is a mess like what do you do other than you know either you know be in denial or you try to solve it but it's not like where do you turn um, so we basically, my whole thesis was that if we at least advertise this, don't know if it'll be a solution, but it at least overcomes the friction of not knowing where to turn, not knowing what to do, not worrying, not knowing where to go. And we can at least remove that friction from this massive pain point of starting a business. Yeah. Oh, love that. It's, it's so true. And I think it, you're right. There's a lot more uh, education coming out around founder psyche and mentality and wellness, something I've you know, dealt with. It's, it's funny. I, I saw the quote, like, my mood is dictated daily by the performance of our Shopify revenue. And I was like, that, that just is so <laughs> accurate. It's crazy. And it's yeah. Like, and it's so hard not to take that home with you or, or on your team too, right? Like if something 100%. is going well, super easy to be enthusiastic and jazz, but you kind of got to peel that back a little bit. And then like, also like when you're, you're down cause um, um, you know, customer return or whatever the, the metric is, it's, it's hard not to take that home or take that on the team too. It's just like a total mind fuck to be honest. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that quote you just said um, that quote, um, which is in our GitHub. Yeah. Yeah. That quote was said to me by an entrepreneur who now runs uh, um, a massively successful consumer business. Um, their business is, you know, advertising on TV nonstop. They've got tons of celebrity endorsers. Uh, I just don't want to say the name. I don't want to call this person out. Sure. I, I bet that if I asked that person, I haven't asked that person this question in the last 12 months, but I bet if I asked this person that question again today, they would give me the exact same answer. My life is still <laughs> yeah. dictated by our Shopify revenue. And that's yeah. just the way it goes. And that's tough. And I think that's something that we all need to work on is, yeah, to have urgency, be obsessive about your business, but to to work, uh, do deep work on, on separating your identity from your Shopify revenues. It's so hard. Like so that's hard. a lot so of hard. hard. Yeah. So yeah, hard because it's what you do like day in and day out. Um, yep, hundred percent. Awesome. Love that you guys are are taking that approach. I think it's you know incredibly important. So uh, thank you for being a, a champion of that. Um, one of the things I think is interesting with starting line is uh, you know the GitHub. You mentioned GitHub. Uh, 
Bloomberg Beta, Bloomberg Beta, I think was, and, and Roy and the team were kind of the, the first to do this. Like they open source, quote unquote, open source, how their fund operates. You know, why did you decide to take a page out of that book and and be pretty transparent with how you guys operate? What was the the allure to doing that? I mean, I don't see any downside. Um, I think it makes conversations a lot easier. Yes, uh, Roy um, is a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, and uh, Roy at Bloomberg Beta, um, and actually was one of the first checks into starting line. In fact, we had breakfast in San Francisco many years ago. I'd cold emailed him. Um, we built a bit of a relationship. Um, and over breakfast, he asked me, he said, why are you not running your own fund? I said, well, who's going to write me a check? He said, I will. I said, really? He said, uh, yeah, I'm in for you know X dollars. And he said, and I'll throw in 25,000 on the side for my own pocket for you to hire a designer to build a deck um, and hire a lawyer to start formation documents, whatever it is. I did not wow. accept that money. Um, but that was one of the greatest signs of conviction and faith that I've ever experienced as an entrepreneur personally. And you don't forget moments like that. Roy will always be a friend. I will always trust him and I will always involve him in anything I do for the rest of my life because who does that, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, so anyway, they've always been an inspiration for me and I like the way that they do business. I like the way they do business a lot uh, and they have always been an inspiration for me. That was number one. Number two is if there's any investor in the world that I kind of obsess over and try to get in their psyche, um, it has historically been Bill Gurley from Benchmark, uh, who actually got to, to meet uh, for the first time a couple of months ago. And that was, uh, I met him, but, but I mean, talking about, you know, have an hour long kind of Zoom sure. chat. Um, and uh, one of the things that I remember asking this question, I said, why did Benchmark get rid of their website? Um, so if you go to Benchmark, it's just like a blank page with a Benchmark logo on it, right? I said, like, are you just that cool? So I think part of it is exclusivity. But his answer was like, no, we live in an era where your website, your branding, so to speak, has basically become an arms race. And if we go and invest $250,000 in building a better site, Andreessen's going to go, you know, invest half a, half, a, half a million. And if they do that, Greylock's going to go invest a million. And then, like, it's just this never-ending arms race to make a better, better product. Um, and I kind of took that inspiration with me to, to GitHub, which is like, at the end of the day, we're selling people and relationships. That I mean, our money is commoditized. So we're selling myself, Ade, Scott, Haley, and we're selling our portfolio, the founders you can build relationships with, angel investors we know, et cetera. That's all we're selling. Um, so uh, with that in mind, like, you know, might as well put as much information out there as possible so people get a sense of you. And if they like who you are, great. Like, let's get closer to doing business. If they don't, <laughs> how, does that, how does that that's interesting right I, I i totally get bill's argument around this is a website with a name on it it's not an arms race uh you mentioned uh, earlier like hey if you are deemed you know the it person or, or company uh you have unlimited funding options uh, the con argument to that then is like if a vc just has like their website and that's it and, and you're underrepresented founder and, and under networked like is that doing a disservice and just creating more of those like, hey, you're now the company and you can unlimited funding and you can only get intros. So it's like, what, what are your thoughts on just like how we can make venture more accessible uh, when it sounds like sometimes it's just, it's just not? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think very highly of the bulb bracket funds, uh, some of whom have, you know, relatively inaccessible websites. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know if they're the ones who are going to be pioneering the change. I mean, what, what we see today in terms of folks pioneering the change are a lot of scout funds um, that are putting money in the pockets of entrepreneurs um, that are still overwhelmingly, you know, upper middle class, white, male, mm -hmm. college educated founders, um, but no longer exclusively by any means. Um, and those scout funds are putting money in the pockets of product managers and designers and engineers. Um, and those people are often extremely diverse. So I think that's a good start. Um, and then you also see just an unbelievable uh, growth in the number of diverse managers. And, and I think that I probably am, too, you know, am overly optimistic because my experiences are anecdotal, not uh, mm -hmm. not necessarily data driven. I bet if you, you know, my understanding is if you look at the data, uh, diversity still looks pretty anemic. Um, you know, uh, when you look at things from an underrepresented perspective on, on a kind of tops down aggregate basis, my hope is that that's skewed by the bold bracket funds, you know, being 90% of the market. So you don't see all the innovation that's happening within, you know, at the low end of the market where at least I'm seeing, uh, a lot of growth in, in diverse managers, um, or it could just be that my friend circle is not representative, but I, I don't yeah. think that's true. Um, yeah. So uh, I think that those are kind of the two areas where you're seeing pioneering a lot of uh, a lot of growth and hopefully solutions to kind of what you're observing. Um, it is, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the problem with venture is that it's very hard to go out to someone you've never met before and say, I want to do a deal with you. Right. Um, by the way, mm -hmm. I sometimes personally still have fears like we'll, we'll wire into a company that I haven't known that long. And like, how do I know they're not just going to outright defraud me and take our money and <laughs> buy a house or like buy a Tesla? Like, <laughs> I, you know, like, I mean, first off, there, yeah. are, there are legitimate integrity issues and, and references help with some of that. But also, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Mark Seuster has this great blog post about building lines, not dots. Yeah. Right. Like relationship building takes time. So I think it is unrealistic to just say, you know, firm X should put more money into people they don't know because they don't know those people. I, I, I it is a systemic problem, but, um, you know, I, you know, if a scout who is, you know, not a billion dollar VC, but is massively rep uh, uh, respected and, and her judgment is respected and she writes a $25,000 check into a business that she thinks highly of and tells the billion dollar fund, you know, I've worked with this person for six years and they're incredible. All of a sudden that changes the calculus. So I sure. do think small dollars have outsized impact in the long run. We're going to go a little, just slightly off script, but we're going to come back to some of the questions, but I think I was going to ask you this anyways, because it, it was slightly referenced here in terms of just like where the market is now, which is, um, you know, pretty insane. And I guess this is July of, of 2021 when we're recording this. Um, are you still being very uh, methodical? Because it, it's, you know, you guys do five or six investments a year, at least that's what I was on the GitHub. Um, like how, how is, how are you restraining yourselves of like what's going on in the market right now? Like what, how is this impacting the work that you guys are doing? The whole lines, not dots, building relationships. Like what are you observing and, and how are you approaching everything that's happening? Uh, it's harder than ever. Um, we're struggling. Um, we, we haven't yet solved it. Um, I think that we often find ourselves starting to veer into behavior that, that I don't necessarily think is long-term sustainable um, but, and trying to correct for that. Um, 
So what I mean by some of these things is um, markets are moving so fast. We'll often meet an entrepreneur and kind of be given a 48 hour deadline to make a decision. Uh, and that can be in like a best case scenario. Sometimes it's like, a lot of times we'll meet an entrepreneur and if we like it, we basically need to buy that night, uh, have a deck built for her about how amazing we think her business is and all of the value we're going to add to it just to like beg for a small allocation into the business. That is, um, that is the reality on the ground today. I don't think that's where we do our best work. We, we, ha we, will, we have made some of those investments um, and we will continue to, I don't know if it's where we do our best work. Um, you know, I, I'm like, so, so look, you need to play the game on the field. And if we basically said, we're only gonna invest in people that we've known for two years, like we'd, you know, we'd have to strike 95% of the deal flow that we see um, because there are so many people spinning out and, and so much innovation going on in the current economy. That said, um, we are doing a few things. We are aggressively trying to invest in people that we know well at stages far earlier than we would have even a couple of years ago. Um, we are trying not to write small checks um, because I don't think it is great for our model as a small fund, but we are in certain cases and then doing whatever we can to, to get more money in, even if we're uncomfortable with the valuation mm -hmm. that we put that money in. So there are certain ways to start to solve these problems. Um, you know, just made an investment recently. Um, uh, someone who had cold Twitter DM'd me 18 months ago uh, for feedback on an idea, had given this individual feedback, had, had kind of built a bit of a relationship with this individual uh, through the DM. Uh, saw that they, you know, had a super viral tweet, kind of followed up with the viral tweet. They kind of said, actually, interesting, there's kind of a round coming together um, and moved super, super fast on that. I mean, I'm talking, you know, a day or so. But when I, when I kind of outlined it for the team, I was like, you know, I don't know this person that well, but my first data point was 18 months ago. I've kept up with them. I've tracked their Twitter. I've tracked their LinkedIn. I've seen, kind of seen the idea evolve. Um, and so while it may be uh, a little bit light on like, we've never gone out for coffee, right? There sure. are actually a lot of there are a lot of data points that we can leverage to build comfort with the trend line that this individual is building. And so I do think that you're forced to kind of think about data points in new ways beyond the traditional, let's meet for coffee once a month. Yeah, it's wild. Why, why is this happening? Like, it's, it's happening in the different parts of the market too. Like even buying a house, it's like, okay, you got to make a decision in 24 hours and there's going to be multiple bidders and, and, and you got to get your shit together. Like, is there, what's the macro? Is there a macro? I mean, there clearly is, and I'm not smart enough to answer this question, but like, what's the macro thing happening? We can remove the house piece. Let's talk about venture. Like what's, what's happening there where the shot clock is 48 hours or less now for, for trying to get a deal done. Well, there's an enormous amount of money in the system. Um, some of that is a function of the Fed printing, you know, uh, many trillion many trillions of dollars that have entered the economy. But another big function of that is that technology that has been a uh, technology venture capital, frankly, that has been a really small allocation for most of the deep pockets uh, globally uh, mm -hmm. over the past several decades. And by deep pockets, I don't mean like just Jeff Bezos, I mean, you know, pensions, endowments, 
sovereign wealth funds that historically has been a two, three, four, five, six percent allocation of their portfolios of you know hundred billion dollar portfolios is now aggressively being ramped uh, to fifteen percent. Uh, of their portfolios because the technology sector has gone from kind of a small niche market to a massive mainstream uh, market with, you know, companies going public left and right. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on. And that all filters downstream. The money at the growth stages filters all the way downstream to the earliest stages. And like I said, you've now got thousands of funds, many of whom are run by, you know, active operators who, are trying to put money to work, but not be full-time investors. Um, and they have increased the pace of the market dramatically. And if you're a founder, in many ways, you don't want to work with people like me. Mm -hmm. We take more time. We're annoying. Uh, we're going to ask for you know a monthly call. We may not have... Uh, I feel really good about the diversity of our team and the operating experience we bring to the table. But in many cases, your VC may be kind of like you know the lender of last resort almost, if you can raise money from other founders, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so you're seeing, uh, and so then VCs in some cases in order to get access are saying, well, you know, we'll pay three times the price in order to get access because, you know, we, we know what the payoff could be at the end of the day, right? There's just a lot of these kind of, you know, flywheels going on. right? Now. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Well, thanks for, for that. Um, I want to switch, we got maybe 10 minutes left. I want to be make sure we're respectful of your time. We'd love to get to some very tactical things Please. Uh, uh, so again, kind of season two for, for our founders listening is, you know, tactical advice, giving you a better chance at, at fundraising. And so we're going to hear what investors have to say to some of these questions. Um, yeah. Do you, do you prefer? I wish I knew, man. I'm a, I'm a, pretty, <laughs> I'm a pretty mediocre fundraiser myself. So okay. uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how this goes. But see. I think you, at least you're, you're writing checks to this thing. So do you prefer when founders send a deck in advance of the first meeting um, or not? Like, and, and should it be the full deck or, or light version? Uh, I don't have a strong opinion on full deck or light version. I have a very strong opinion on sending enough context ahead of time that you know we can have a conversation. Um, mm -hmm. I think that I think that if uh, if the time that we have together, whether it's twenty five minutes, forty five minutes, or an hour, uh, is a pitch, quote unquote, like you've kind of lost in, in most a vast majority of cases, like lost the, lost the war or the battle, I don't know which one. Um, I just think it's very, very difficult because this is a relationship game. And if you're just kind of pitching a person, you know, there, there's, there's kind of a, a great concept that like the best way to engage someone is to get them asking questions. Um, and I, as an investor, find myself far more engaged when I can get passionate about ideas, start asking questions like what we do in this case, what we do in that case, right? And I think it also helps you understand how an entrepreneur thinks. Mm -hmm. um, so I like very much providing as much information as possible ahead of time, whether that is an overview. Uh, some people write their own deal memos now. Mm -hmm. Some people... Uh, kind of build like a notion outline yeah. of like all about their company, a deck. I don't care. But I want to be able to have a conversation. Yeah. What are the two or three most important aspects of that that deck or context, you know, whether it's notion, deck, memo, like what are the for you, you know, as a starting line, what are the two or three most important aspects you like to see nailed in that memo or whatever the the, the medium is being delivered? Yeah, let's just be clear. Like, I'm happy to give you the perspective from Ezra at starting line, but sure. it is going to differ for every investor, meaning uh, there are going to be many, I don't do SaaS, like we just, right. we're a consumer fund, right? But there are going to be a lot of SaaS investors who want to see like cash efficiency and like, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, negative net churn, like whatever it may be. 
that's not really my world. What I care about a lot is a really strong reimaginative narrative. Um, so narrative matters a lot to a lot to us because in the consumer world, so much of this is about getting people excited and building mm -hmm. organic uh, organic virality via word of mouth. Um, and uh, you know th th that that is a function very often in being able to articulate a very crisp narrative within a couple of slides, right? If you can yeah. do it in a couple of slides, you're unlikely to be able to do it in the broader market. And certainly your customers who are not as expert in your business are not gonna be able to do it with their friends, right? So we care a lot about that. We also care a lot about the acumen, uh, our assessment of the acumen of the founding team to be able to raise additional capital. I, I don't love this part of the market, but it's just demonstrably true um, that uh, there are frankly, you know, uh, people who are considered good fundraisers versus bad. And I don't think it's a function of gender or age. I do think it's a function of, again, narrative, really mm -hmm. understanding your place in the ecosystem, um, as well as being able to uh, kind of define uh, the range of kind of outcomes that the company could evolve um, and the incremental steps that you're kind of interested in, in taking along that path. So we care a lot about that in the consumer. Part of the reason why I'm stressing this is that in the consumer world, any good idea will get copied very, very quickly. And the mm -hmm. effect of that copycatting is that if you're all trying to acquire a customer, so let's say through direct response marketing on Instagram or Facebook, those costs are going to bloat very, very quickly. Uh, all six companies are going to fight against each other. Everybody's going to get diluted. Nobody's going to make, you know, even if you sell your business for $400 million, you know, I'll take 80% dilution. No one will do that well, right? And so as consumer investor, one of the things that I'm fundamentally looking for is like, is this, uh, is this story really, really kind of net new to the market in a way that I don't think you're going to run into those same headwinds in customer mm -hmm. acquisition? Um, so that's something we care a lot about. That's not the only thing, but but uh, yeah. I do think that that I do think that that uh, informs a lot of kind of the companies that make it down funnel for us. What is is it a so would would are you? I know you guys are looking. You know, even call it right when the product's early. So are there certain metrics that you're looking for, like K factor virality growth, like anything like that, or is that that's like later on, and you're really just focused on kind of team product and, and story. Yeah, I mean, metrics are important that there's, all, I mean, if a company has metrics, we're gonna beat them up and, and spend a lot of time trying to understand them and get a sense of human psychology and behavior. But no, there is no one metric that we look for. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty commonly understood at this point, uh, and I've been beating the drum on this for a while that you know, fundamentally, we're looking for engagement, which drives retention, which drives growth um, for a lot of the, the products that, that we invest in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's like, I, I remember, uh, I don't say it's publicly uh, enough, but I remember um, when I was 16, I was an actor um, and uh, not full time, but I did a show off Broadway. I don't know, maybe I was 14. I can't remember exactly. Um, and there was this, uh, there was this woman that was in the show and she was telling me about a date she was going out that night. And like, she didn't seem, you know, super excited. I asked her like, why are you going on the date? Like, I, 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 I don't think yeah. I dated a girl. Like, I didn't even know anything about this. <laughs> I said like, I was just naive. I kind of said like, why are you going? Like, you don't seem very excited. Like, why are you going? She said, well, he's not boring. 
Um, and I, 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 and I do think uh, as <laughs> I think that's a little bit analogous in a certain sense to to kind of the dating process of, of investors and founders of, you know, we look at a lot of businesses that seem incremental, that seem derivative. Um, and something that really, really stands out for us is like when it's not boring, when it's just different and new. And a lot of times it's too crazy for our comfort level, but we always respect it at a minimum. Um, and uh you know, Chris Dixon has this great uh, post. The next great thing, the next big thing will start out looking like a toy. One of my favorite blog posts ever. Um, yeah. And that, that does inform a lot of how we see the world. Uh, it's, it's so true when you think about some of the more iconic businesses that, that have come in the last decade of how they seem like a toy. I mean, uh, you could argue Uber was just a black car service for rich people in San Francisco and Cameo was just like, oh, this is kind of a fun one-off thing. Like, I think you could argue that a yeah. lot of the, Iconic things have started out as toys, hundred um, percent. Which which is Bitcoin. which is hard to invest in though, right? It's like, yeah, this seems like a toy. Like, and so it takes a lot of conviction to write checks into those types of companies. I feel like because you're like, oh, how big is the market? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we actually we wrote a we made a really crazy investment um, right at the close of our first fund. Uh, we haven't announced the investment yet. It's the final investment out of our first fund into a kind of uh, super crazy social social media company. Um, but again, the kind of like the, the discussion internally with our team was like, we've never seen anything like this before. Um, and technology has not been able to support a product like this until arguably eight weeks ago. Um, and so like, <laughs> that's pretty interesting, right? Now my head, I'm like, what happened eight weeks ago? My guess is it's something with iOS. Um, yeah, was, I mean, it, it was iOS yeah. related and it's at this yeah. point, it's probably six months ago. It was like uh, September, August okay. 2020, but yeah. Okay. Anyway. Uh, that, awesome, okay, this has been fun. Um, three three questions um, we wrap and ask all guests. Uh, what catches your eye in a cold email, like from a founder? You, you guys mentioned you take cold pitches. How how should it be formatted or, or what catches your eye in a, in a cold email? Yeah, so we have made uh, multiple investments off both cold emails and cold DMs. Um, uh, I think we're probably like 80% of like actually reading uh, cold emails and cold DMs. And like, if we miss it, please follow up. Sometimes we just go through really busy periods where it's just like, we're just kind of triaging whatever we can. Um, what stands out for me, I guess, is just a very concise description. So first off, it has to be a category that we probably care about or that mm -hmm. like seems, seems intriguing. Um, often I think that, uh, like, you know, one of them, one of them was a company called Zorro Card that we uh, invested in. It happens to be in Indiana, actually. Um, and uh, that is a, um, a product for building credit, whatever. We'd spend a lot of time thinking about building credit. And I think the subject line was like uh, innovative approach to credit building. Like, okay, that's a market I'm passionate about. And the email was one paragraph. Maybe I'll forward it to you and, and your viewers can. Sure. And it was not the world's best email, but it was, uh, it was uh, concise. Um, in a, in a category that we were interested in and was very, was able to very quickly articulate that they were taking an approach that had never been done before in the category, within like a paragraph or two, right? Not a long paragraph, like three sentences each, right? That is super, super awesome. And like, my response was like, how are you? I literally wrote back like, this is interesting. How are you doing that? I think, something uh, like that, right? Um, so, so that is a good, that is a good example of one that we did off a cold email. Zero card. I was like, that sounds familiar. Also a customer of ours. So shout out to That's awesome. <laughs> there you uh, go. Okay. Amazing. Cool. Two more questions. Um, number one thing founders can do to help 
uh, speed up their fundraising process? This question probably isn't even that relative right now because it's so fast, but like anything, like where do you see founders get stuck? Maybe even founders who are helping raise the next round, like what can they do just to make sure they have a successful fundraise? Yeah, I mean, so, so first off, uh, I think there, I think we're going to cause a lot of insecurities if we say may not even be so relevant because things are so fast. I can't speak to all your customers, but I would sure, imagine that. a lot of them are struggling with with fundraising um, because again, the market is a market of haves and have nots. I do think that part of narrative is a function of building the story to create validation and legitimacy. As investors, I should have said kind of one of the things we're looking for, not necessarily in, in the pitch, so to speak, but ultimately as we get closer to the business, is we are looking to validate certain elements of their model that can be through metrics, that can be through customer research, that can be through references in our own network. For instance, we're looking at a lot of like consumer infrastructure right now uh, around, you know, like, you know, at, at, I don't know, widgets at the point of sale and stuff like that, right? We, we can very easily go out to our network of merchants and retailers and, and get a sense of assets, right? So anyway, there are different ways you want to validate. One of the ways uh, to validate your business uh, is like to have other investors, uh, or to have a story of how it involved that proves legitimacy. I worked at mm-hmm. MasterCard and now I'm building a FinTech. I'm like, like it's small little data points, right? Everything you can do is build a data point. There are also things you can do now around building in public. Like I've had, you know, th- there are plenty of people who've, uh, you know, messaged us and said, you know, you can kind of follow my Twitter to see our journey or whatever it may be. Um, so to kind of go back to what we spoke about earlier about kind of the reimagination of data points and relationship building, I think there are a lot of things you can do in the current market um, to to add legitimacy yeah. there, but that all plays into overall narrative. Yeah, love it. And finally, uh, I'm like, hey, starting lines of fit. Same, I'm, a cons- I'm 99% consumer, right stage. I'm really into relationship building and care about who's on my cap table. Uh, you know, any tips? uh for increasing a, a chance of a meeting with anyone on the on the starting line team uh so we try to take a lot of meetings like i don't want us to be like a gated fund uh, <laughs> uh right now like i think we're probably missing a bunch of meetings just because uh our schedules have been so packed and there's only so many hours in the day um Honestly, all of us should have our Twitter DMs open. Um, I do think with the barrage and the volume of emails, it's like if something's not 48 hours recent, like it can be possible. I mean, we do all try to get the inbox zero, but it can be difficult. Um, I review my Twitter DMs once a month so that even if I missed something, it's like, you know, at least once a month, like we'll go back and just try to respond to everybody, even if it's, you know, a couple of weeks late, which doesn't feel great, but it's probably not the end of the world. Um, I would... uh, I would, I would encourage people to avoid LinkedIn as, as a means of reaching yeah. out. I use LinkedIn all the time, but it's just, there's so much like noise on there. That, <laughs> so you think, that, that like, I don't really go into like my LinkedIn message box unless I'm like, I'm really motivated to like yeah. talk to them. And, and so actually it happens. I just responded to like three months worth of LinkedIn messages recently because I, I went in there to send something to someone. I was like, ah, well, I'm here. I should probably go through this stuff. And there were some amazing people and messages in there. And I felt really, really bad that they just been sitting there for months, but it's just not a focus or a priority. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Ezra, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate all your thoughts from mental health to the macro, what's going on to tactical things. Uh, this has been super fun. Uh, and appreciate everything you guys are doing and, and we'll talk to you soon. Mike, this was awesome. Can't wait to see the finished product and thanks so much for taking the time to do this. With yeah. You. Awesome. See ya.